All right, well, you can turn over Acts chapter 26 because I want to read a portion of Scripture before we get to our passage in Romans. In this passage of Scripture is really Paul's testimony before Agrippa. And I want you to understand the man that wrote the book of Romans and much of the New Testament wasn't all, always on God's side. At one time in his life, he was a pretty unsavory individual doing everything to oppose God. And uh, I just want to read this section of Scripture. You can follow along in your Bibles, Acts chapter 26, just a few pages to the left of the book of Romans there. And this is Paul's defense before Agrippa, the king there. He says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And here's what he said. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense against you uh, against all the, today, against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, to listen to me patiently. Now remember, Paul here is in chains. He was arrested for preaching the gospel. And so he's trying to give King Agrippa a defense and maybe a little bit of perspective on his own life. And so in verse 4 he says, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they can earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused... Um, by the Jews, O king, what is, what is it thought incredible, why is it thought incredible to any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now he's talking about before he came to Christ. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints, Christians, in prison and after receiving authority from the chief priests, but that when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So Paul was not on God's side, clearly. And then in verse 12, he goes on, he's giving his testimony here, and he says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the, com- the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice to me in the Hebrew language saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things to which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, uh, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in place and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was first, as he was saying these uh, things, in his defense, Festus, said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. When you read about the Apostle Paul when he was Saul. His name was changed when he became a Christian. Uh, you realize that this man was, he was obviously a Jew, and he was a very prominent Jew. He was a Pharisee. He kept all the law. He did everything that a Pharisee needed to do to look Pharisaical in the eyes of the people. And not only that, but he really thought that he was doing God's will. He thought that somehow the Christians who rose up were going to somehow cause a problem for the Jews, and so he was just doing what he thought was the right thing to do for his religion, to which he was committed to. Unfortunately, it was out of God's will, clearly, and God had to make a personal... um, a personal... Uh, kind of uh, appearance to him. On the road to Damascus, when he was going to persecute more Christians, God stopped him in his tracks and said, hey, who are you persecuting? You know, what do you think you're doing? And, uh, and this is Jesus who's talking to you, by the way. And it was a life-changing event in the life of Paul. And you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, what possibly can change a life like that? What possibly could change a life so dramatically um, 
And so totally, from something that was totally anti-God, against God, to somebody who was for the cause of Christ. I mean, in a way, it would be like seeing a, one of the characters of ISIS, the radical brand of Islam. They're out beheading people and killing people and raping people, and they all doing it, they're doing it for a religious cause. And then God transforms their life. And all of a sudden, they're doing the work of God for Christ. That would be a radical transformation. And you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, how is that possible? I mean, are these guys just turning over a new leaf? I don't think so. I mean, how did it happen that Paul, when he wrote 1 Timothy chapter 1 there, he says, I was a blasphemer and injurious, but the Lord counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 it tells us that homosexuals and murderers and adulterers and fornications, uh, fornicators and people like that will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet it says this, and such were some of you. <laughs> wow. What is it that dramatically changes a life? Well, the answer is found for us in our text in Romans chapter 6. And he's been telling us over and over again that we're all on an equal playing field, that we're all lost in our sin, that we all need a Savior. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a person in this building today that can say, oh, no, I'm above all that. I'm perfect. I'm someone who doesn't sin. No, we all sin. And we know we sin because the Spirit convicts us of our sin. And what God is trying to get across to us is that we all are in this same boat together. There's not anyone in the world that is not classified as a sinner. And so when you stop and you think of this new life in Christ, all right, what makes that radical transformation possible? I mean, Jesus Christ can totally change a person's life from the inside out. He's done it for me. I'm sure he's done it for many of you. And we could go around the room and we could share testimonies. Oh, before Christ, I was this. I was that. I was into drugs. I was an alcoholic. I was a gang member. I was this. I was, you know, whatever it might be. And yet, when I came to Christ, when, when Christ transformed my life, something changed. In the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20, it says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ, what, lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, think about that for a second. I am crucified with Christ. You're going to see that when we enter our text in Romans 6, that we have been crucified with Christ. And yet, Paul says in Galatians, nevertheless, I live. You know, it's Christ that lives in me. It's not my old self-living, it's Christ living through me. And that's an important point to understand when we enter the Christian life. That it's not just business as usual when you become a Christian. The moment we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, by this divine miracle of transformation, we are crucified with Christ, we are buried with Him, the Bible says. 
We die in his death. And then we rise, the Bible says, in the newness of life. We're transformed. And that's what Paul has been talking about here in chapter 5 and beginning in chapter 6. He's going to continue all the way through chapter 8. And it's this process we introduced last week about sanctification. The idea that God is slowly molding us and making us, making us more holy, fashioning us into the image of his Son. That's the process of sanctification. The process of God making us more set apart from this world. Now, positionally, we are set apart from this world. But practically, we live in this world every day. And so we have to figure out a way to deal with the sin and everything that's around us. And that's really what Paul is introducing here in chapter 6. And today we're going to do a lot of review from last week because I have to clarify a lot of things that I said because I think maybe it opened a can, more of a can of worms than it, and it did help you out. But I, I want you to understand clearly what Paul is saying here in Romans. And so I want us to focus on this text and uh, Romans chapter 6, and I'm just going to read the entire passage. We're not going to get through this all today. Romans 6, chapter 1, or chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. So up to this point, Paul is telling us we have to be saved by grace. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by works. Coming to church doesn't make you a holy person. Going to the confessional doesn't make you a holy person. Being baptized doesn't make you a holy person. The only way to become a holy person is to be saved by the blood of Christ. To come to Christ and to throw yourself upon his mercy. Like the person in the the New Testament who stood on the corner and, and basically raised his hands to heaven and said, Be merciful to me, a sinner, O God. And that's what we need to do. We need to come to the end of ourselves. The more you try to work on your salvation, thinking that somehow you're gaining God's grace by doing certain things in your life, you're not going closer to God, you're going further away. Now, on the outside, you may look real spiritual. You know, you may go to church seven days a week. So what? That doesn't mean anything to God unless you've accessed His grace and the faith that He's giving you through Christ. But here in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Paul asks this question because in chapter 5, he says, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so if I'm saying that you're saved by grace, not by works, and the more you sin, you'll never out-sin God's grace. Some people, unfortunately, conclude that, well, then, go for it. (laughs) You know, if if God is going to give me more grace, the more I sin, then why don't I just sin more so I can get more of God's grace? And he knew that that's what they were thinking. Because he just got done telling you can't be religious, you can't work for your salvation. It's all by grace. And he takes it to the point of saying that even where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. You can't outlive God's grace. You can't outsin God's grace. But there's a caveat to that. There's, there's a, you have to put that in perspective. And so in verse 1 of chapter 6, he begins to ask this question. Look at what he says. What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not, Paul says. No, no, no. A million times no. Don't even think that way. Get that out of your mind, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection like, in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I remember reading in the Daily Bread a little story about a man who was freshly married, newlywed, young man. And he actually forgot he was married. And so after they came back from their honeymoon, he went out and went to work. And he was getting home late from work one evening. And absentmindedly, he actually went to his mother's house instead of his new bride where their home was. Um, you know, you can kind of give a tip to newlyweds, you know, that's, that's a pretty uh, bad thing to do. Don't forget you're married. But it's easy sometimes to do if you've been single for a long time and all of a sudden, wow, you have this big change. And it seems kind of, you know, hard to believe that somebody would actually do that. But when you stop and you think about it, it's fairly common among those who are married to Christ. Those who are saved. Those who have been baptized into Christ were joined to him as a bride, the Bible says. So now that we're members of his body, that's what Ephesians 5, 25 and 33 says. We're identified with him in his death, in his resurrection. And so because of that, the power of sin has been broken. That's what he says there in verses 1 through 4. We went over that last week. But we forget this essential truth, I think, every time we fall into sin. We forget that. And Paul is really answering the charge that his teaching that God justifies the ungodly by grace through faith alone, apart from any merit, will somehow lead to people sinning more. See, they, 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 the Jews would go out and they would tell people everything they can't do. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. And so after 
Paul became a Christian, he realized, wait, we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what was done for us on the cross. And so he, he, his message radically changed. Rather than going around as a Pharisee telling everybody, oh, you have to do this, you have to do this, and then God will accept you, his message all of a sudden became, you know what, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters what was done for you and whether you're, you're willing or not to put your faith and trust in the work of Christ. Because you're not going to make yourself righteous. The Bible says, well, how righteous do you have to be? Jesus said, well, you have to be perfect as my father's perfect. You're not going to get there. I don't care how much you come to church. I don't care how many times you've been baptized or whatever. You're not going to get perfect. The only way we can attain that kind of perfection is through Christ. And we have to be reminded of that. That our union with Jesus Christ is completely opposed to a life that continues in sin. It's like black and white. It's like night and day. Our identification with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, it frees us, the Bible says, from the slavery to sin. And allows us to walk in the newness of life. I mean, stop and think about it. When you became a Christian, did your life change? Was your life transformed? Was there a sense of coming out of the darkness of this world and into the light of God's glory? Because, brothers and sisters, if, if, if you can look at your life and say, well, nothing's really happened. <laughs> no, there was no change. I mean, I started going to church. That was about the only change. Took an hour out of my week every day. Every, 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 every week, you know, to go to church, but nothing else really changed. I behave the same way, I think the same way, I act the same way. Then we got a problem. Because you have to ask, did that transformation take place? And so Paul knows that we're prone to forget our new position in Christ. I think one of the major problems with believers today is that they forget who they are in Christ. Or maybe they've never been taught who they are in Christ. And that's really the foundation for holy living. So he hammers it out here in these verses. And here is just Paul's flow of thought. Okay, And if you're looking at your outline today, I don't even know if we're going to get to the outline, so just be patient with me. Okay, I'm trying to set some things up here. and We might get into that, we might not. We've got a lot, a lot of work to do before we get to the outline. But just, just, just hear me out on this. Okay, Paul's flow of thought is this. In verse 4, he says that our baptism pictured the spiritual union that we have with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We talked about that last week. And the practical result of that is that we might now walk in a newness of life. Our life is to be new. Something's different. Something's changed when you become a Christian Verse 5 really supports and explains verse 4. Because verse 5 opens up there with that word for. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then in verses 6 to 7, Paul expounds on this First half, first half of verse 5. So he states something in verse 5 at the very beginning, and then he says, let me explain what I mean. 
And he does that in verses 6 and 7. And then in verses 8 and 10 of chapter 6, he explains the second half of of verse 5. So 6 and 7 really deal with that we're no longer to be slaves to sin. Verses 8 through 10 deal with the second half of verse 5 that shows that we will also live again with Christ. And he explains, begins to unfold and unwrap the implications of Christ's death and his resurrection. So that we can understand further what our union with him means. And mainly he has in mind, just so you know, that break with sin and a new life in God. That demarks the Christian life. That, that marks out those who are in Christ and those who are not. And then in, verses, in verse 11, he basically applies those truths. He says, even consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a, a difficult text, as I said last week, to deal with. There's a lot of issues here. There's a lot of theology involved. There's all sort of interpretive issues. And so we're going to try to put the cookies on the bottom shelf because that's about the only shelf I can reach, okay? And we're going to try to understand this together. And I, I'm, you know, like I said, one message is not going to just, oh, wow, that made it crystal clear. No. Um, there's been theologians who've studied this text a lifetime and they still don't have it all figured out. So we have to kind of humble ourselves before God and ask his spirit to help our minds think and understand what Paul is saying here. And I pray your study in this text won't stop with a sermon, that you'll go home and you'll peruse these verses on your own and go on the Internet and find out what what these things mean. But they're important because Paul's aim in this portion of Scripture is that we would understand what it means to live in victory over sin. If there's anything a Christian should desire is to live in victory over sin. Amen? I mean, because we're faced with it every day. It surrounds us. You can't turn on the TV. You can't go down the freeway. You can't go anywhere without being, having sin in your face. And even in our own lives, we're prone to sin day after day. And so Paul says, I want to help you out with this. I want to show you that you can have victory over sin. Not that you're going to be perfect. Not that you're going to be sinless. He doesn't say that. But you can have and understand that you have victory over sin. And to do that, you have to understand that when Christ died and when he rose from the dead, he not only paid the penalty for our sin, which he did, he substituted his perfect life, his holy life, on Calvary, and he paid for the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in him. But not only that, he also provided us the power that we need to overcome sin on a daily basis. See, it'd be one thing if Jesus said, okay, yeah, just believe in me and my sacrifice on the cross, and that's going to cover all your sin in the past. But from now on, you're on your own, pal. (laughs) You know, he doesn't do that. He's conquered even the power of sin. And so in this, if this message kind of leaves you all over the place and you're kind of confused by the time you walk out of here, don't just shrug your shoulders and walk away. I pray that you would really 
want to come back to these verses and, and, and look at them and, and try to digest them and understand what Paul is saying. Now, in way of review, last week, the heading was this. We kind of looked at verses 1 through 4, and we saw that our union with Christ in his death and resurrection is the foundation for separation from sin and walking in newness of life. In other words, as a Christian, if you want to walk in the newness of life that Christ has given you, and you want to separate yourself further from sin, you better understand that you are united with your Savior in his death and resurrection. That's, that's fundamental. It's, it's a foundation. And we, we covered four things. The first one was there's a logical implication to reject. Since God's response to increased sin is abundant grace, then we should sin more to get more grace. We need to reject that. That's not true. That's not what God wants us to do. And Paul kind of anticipates that question. And he begins to see that, you know what, there's certain people who would say, oh, no, that's okay. We can just, you know, kind of sin more and God will give us more, more grace. And we talked about antinomian behavior, the antinomian meaning anti-law. In other words, there's some people that call themselves Christians that say, well, we don't have anything to do with the law anymore. We can do whatever we want because God's paid for all of our sins. And that's faulty thinking. And then secondly, we saw that there's a spiritual fact that we need to understand and we need to know. And that was this. In Christ, we died to sin, so we cannot still live in it. In Christ, we died to sin, and we cannot still live in it. By live, I mean as a way of life. Thirdly, we saw this, that there's a spiritual analogy to help you understand this. And we talked about baptism. And even though in the text here it's not talking about water baptism, it's talking about spiritual baptism, that when you come to faith in Christ, he baptizes you, he immerses you in Christ, he joins you with Christ. That's the baptism he's talking about here. And I want to share a little bit more about that because I think maybe... There was some confusion on that last week. And then the fourth thing we looked at last week was there is a spiritual fact to believe and to act upon, and it was this. Since we are united with Christ in his glorious resurrection, we should walk in the newness of life. Now, I just want to kind of pause here before we even get into the text of today, verses 5 to 11, because I don't know if we're going to get there or not, but I just wanted to share some thoughts on last week's message. And... This text talks about who we are in Adam, right? Our old life in Adam. We were all in Adam. We've all been born into sin because of Adam's sin. And then there's a way out through Christ. We can all be forgiven. All of our sins have been paid for through Christ. And so that's the new life that we talk about. Our old life is that life that's wrapped up in Adam. The new life is the life that is wrapped up in Christ. And I just wanted to read a portion of John Stott's uh, commentary on this, this exposition of Scripture because he kind of puts it in a way that helps us understand. Um, and he, he says here that these verses in Romans 6, when he uses the phrase, died or dead to sin, okay, we see it there in, in verse... Um, 10, 11, and also in verse uh, 6. Um, or in verse uh, uh, 7, I think it is, where we, we have died to sin. Okay? 
uh, it appears two, verse two, by no means how we who died to sin, there it is, and then also in verse uh, 10, for the death he died, he died to sin, and then uh, in verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. And you look at all those and you say, okay, well, who's that talking about? And then the two instances, the first and the last, in verse 2 and in verse 11, he's obviously talking about Christian men and women. If you look at that, by no means, how can we, he says, die to sin? In verse 11, he says, um, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin. But then the middle one there, in verse 10, he's speaking of Christ. The second of those verses in verse 10 is a reference to Christ. And, and basically he says, you know what? Christ died to sin. And if we died with Christ, the logical question is, well, how did Jesus Christ die to sin? Because if we want to be, reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, then maybe we should take a little uh, lesson from Christ. And first of all, the Bible tells us that he died to the penalty of sin. When Jesus Christ died, he died to the penalty of sin. And he did that by taking upon himself the sins of the whole world, the Bible says. He met sin's legal demand for all of mankind who would ever put their faith and trust in him. By their faith in him, he empowered, they were empowered by his divine and limitless grace And because of that, we have been reckoned dead to sin. So, the penalty of sin. Secondly, Christ died to the power of sin. He died to the power of sin. Forever breaking its power over those who belong to God through faith in His Son. And Paul assures us over and over again. One place is in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He, he assured even these people in the Corinthian church who were very much prone to sin. They were very immature believers. And he says this in verse 21. He says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was punished for our sin in our place. And so if you begin to kind of carry that thought through, you'll be thinking of what we studied earlier, justification. That God has declared us righteous. And that, you know what, we're, 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 we're dead to sin's guilt because God has declared us righteous in Christ because we have placed our faith, our trust in Christ and in His work God has declared us righteous. That's what justification is. But what's interesting in verse 10, the reference to Jesus' death in verse 10 does not say that he died for sin, does it? It doesn't say that. What's it say? He died to sin. It says he died to sin. And that's the exact same thing that is said of us, that we die to sin. Secondly, he doesn't just stop there. 
He says that he died to sin, but he adds three important words at the end of verse 10 there, or in the middle actually, once for what? All. Once for all. I mean, the verse reads, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, you might say, well, this is kind of nitpicking. It is, but it's very important that we understand this. Because what this means, as far as sin is concerned, Jesus' relationship to it is finished forever. It's finished forever. See, when he lived upon the earth, hear me out, he did have a relationship with it. He wasn't sinful in any way. He was perfect. But he was around sin all the time. He had come to die for sin. That was the purpose of Jesus' coming. To put an end to its claims upon us. But now, having died, that phase of his life, you might say, is past. It's over. It's never going to be repeated. And even in verse 9, which leads into verse 10... He says exactly that. He says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has a mastery over him. So we must understand, and we have to apply what this means to be death, the understanding of death to sin. How does this refer to us? Well, I think, first of all, by realizing that as a result of our union with Christ and his death and in his resurrection, that old life of sin in Adam, remember, we were all in Adam before we were in Christ. Basically, what he's saying is it's past for us also who are in Christ. In other words, we can never go back to it again, ever. We have been brought... From that old life, that old life in Adam, we've been brought out, and the end of that would have been death. And we've been brought out of that into a new life, which ends in righteousness. And because that's true of us, if that's what the Bible says, and that's what it says pretty boldly, we have to embrace that fact that is true and live for righteousness. Because that's what God declares of us. John Stott uses this little story to kind of drive this point home. He says, suppose there was a man called John Jones, an elderly Christian believer, who is looking back upon his long life. His career is divided by his conversion into two parts, the old self John Jones before his conversion, and the new self, John Jones after his conversion. The old self and the new self, or the old man and the new man, are not John Jones's two different natures. They are the two halves of his life, separated by a new birth. At conversion, signified in baptism, John Jones, the old self, died through union with Christ. The penalty of his sin was born, was paid for. At the same time, John Jones rose again from death, a new man, to live a new life to God. Now John Jones is is as every believer. We are John Joneses if we are in Christ. 
the way in which our old self died is that we were crucified with Christ. And he goes on a little further and he says this, Our our biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of the old man, the old self, of me before my conversion. Volume two is the story of the new man, the new self, of me after I was made a new creation in Christ. Volume one of my biography ended with the judicial death of the old self. I was a sinner. I deserved to die. I did die. I received my deserts in my substitute with whom I have become one. Volume 2 of my biography opened with my resurrection, my old life, having finished a new life to God has begun. Now, last week I asked the simple question, where do you go from here? What happens at this point? Um, Do we continue to live in a life of sin so that Grace may abound, that's what Paul asks. Or do we choose the other path, the path of God-like conduct? Um, And that's what you need to really ask your own self. By now, hopefully you can see that there's no possible alternative for those who are truly saved but to go down God's path. The life of sin in what we have died to, is gone. There's no going back for us any more than there could be going back to suffer and die for sin again by our Lord. Jesus would never do that. He said, I died once for all. And if there's no going back, if that possibility has been eliminated, there is no direction for us but to where? Go forward to be sanctified, to be made more holy each and every day. That's why a proper understanding of Romans chapter 6, verse 2 is really the key to your sanctification, to your holiness, to your Christian living. See, rather than stress the fact of what God is telling us, some people try to find some intense emotional experience here. Thinking if only they can make themselves feel closer to God, somehow they'll become holy. Others try to find their holiness or their sanctification through a special methodology. They think if they do certain things, or they follow a certain way, or a prescribed ritual, or whatever it might be, somehow that will make them holy. Beloved, godliness does not come from those things. It just doesn't. In fact, if you're trying to get godly, if you're trying to become more Christ-like by following those things, it's rather deceptive. Because a holy life comes from what? A holy life comes from knowing. Knowing that you can't go back. There's no return. That you have died to sin. That you've been made alive to God. Stott says this a little further on in his commentary. He says, A born-again Christian should no more think of going back to an old life than an adult to his childhood, a married man to his bachelorhood, or a discharged prisoner to his prison cell. You ask the question, can an adult still want to be a child or an infant? Yeah, we have childish people all around us. Can a happily married man... Want to go back and be a bachelor? Sure. 
Can a freed man want to become a prisoner again? I guess so. But I don't think any right-minded man or woman would want to do those things. That doesn't make sense. You'd have to be mad. And there needs to be an understanding here of what Paul is saying here in verse 3 when he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Like I said, this is speaking of spiritual baptism. It's not talking about water baptism. And you have to understand that when you read the word baptism in the Bible, it means to immerse. It means to be you know, immersed in, in water in some cases. But there's other places where it means other things. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Let me just read this for you, and you'll see it's not talking about water baptism. It says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Clearly, he's not referring to water baptism here. Because the only people who were baptized in water were the Egyptians who were chasing them, right? So, I mean, they were not, they were drowned by it, all right? These Israelites didn't even get their feet wet, the Bible says. Well, what does that verse mean? What does Paul mean when he says that? Obviously, he's referring to a permanent identification of the people with Moses as a result of their crossing the Red Sea. Before this, they were still in Egypt. They could have renounced Moses' leadership. And they could have retained their allegiance to Pharaoh. And just went on as business as usual. But once they crossed that Red Sea, and once everything crashed in on the Egyptians, there was no going back. They were joined to Moses for the duration of their desert wandering. They were not able to go back. That's why Paul uses this word baptism here. He uses the word baptized in baptism in verses 3 and 4. A couple other places in the Bible where it doesn't refer to water baptism is Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Paul writes, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's not talking about water baptism. It's talking about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Well, when does that happen? It happens at salvation. You're baptized. You're brought into Christ. In Mark chapter 16, verse 16, people use this all the time to say, well, this proves that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Whoever believes, Jesus said, and is baptized will be saved. That's what, that's what Mark says. And a lot of people have wrongly concluded, beloved, that Unless somebody is first baptized into water, they're not saved. That's not what Jesus is teaching. First of all, that would negate the idea that you're saved by grace and grace alone. Secondly, we'd have a real problem with the thief on the cross, right? Who repented, apparently, and Christ said, oh, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, he was never baptized by water, but he was baptized into Christ spiritually. And so it's important that we understand that every time the Bible uses the word baptism, it doesn't mean baptism in a tank somewhere with water. Now, that being said, our identification with Christ through baptism is very important. And we talked about that last week. 
But I didn't want to confuse anybody to say that, oh, this is talking about water baptism here. No, this is talking about spiritual baptism. And that's why when Jesus says things like, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. All right? That's to the extent that you're going. In other words, you're forsaking everything that's back here and you're following Christ now. There's no turning back. And it's the same way in our practical living. And in Romans 6, 3-4, what it means is that a true follower of Christ has died to the past life like a man on his way to execution. And yet, in Romans, it brings up another interesting little caveat here. Only in Romans 6, it says the man has already died and been buried. It's already done. And that's what baptism is. It's a picture of that. And a lot of times we hear the illustration of people saying, oh yeah, baptism, you know, you're dying in Christ, and then you're being raised in newness in life. And that's true. And that's what the Bible says here. But what is the idea here that we are joined with Christ? Before, in our old life, we were in Adam. Now we are in Christ. We're a new creature in Christ. And so Paul, this question that he asked, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And he says, it's impossible. That's his, that's his, that's his answer. That's impossible. We died to sin. How can we continue to live in it? Our union with Christ and the death to sin. And that's what our baptism pictures. We have had an experience similar, you might say, to that of the Jews after they had been brought through the Red Sea. They were joined to Moses. Well, we are joined to Christ. Or to put it in the words of Galatians 3.27, we have been clothed with Christ. We are now in Christ's uniform. We're not in Adam's uniform. And what that means, if, if we look backward is that we have died to whatever has gone before us as Christians. We died to the old life when Christ transferred us into the new life. And so he asked the question, how can we live in sin any longer? It's also interesting here that Paul focuses on this, this baptism, this identification with Christ, and how it's, we're united with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through this. And we're identified with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We've been identified with Christ as we have been. We are identified with him in a lot of different respects here, but particularly his death and his resurrection. But one thing I don't hear a lot of people say or point out is that Paul does not talk about being baptized into his resurrection. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that we've been baptized into Christ's resurrection. He does go on in verse 4 and he says that just as Christ has been raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too will have new life. Or in verse 5, he says, united with him like this in his resurrection... 
But in verse 3, he speaks of our baptism into Christ in only one respect, into his death. And it's interesting that he says that you were baptized into his death. And then in verse 4, he says, we were buried, therefore with him, what? By baptism. Into death. One theologian says, according to these words, it is not to death. It is to the internment of the dead that Paul compares baptism. A lot of times we hear about the resurrection. We hear about the death of Christ. A lot of times we don't hear much about the burial of Christ. How can we said, have been said to be buried with Christ? It doesn't make sense. And what does this mean? And yet Paul is emphasizing that. He's not emphasizing that we're baptized into his resurrection. He says, no, we're baptized into his burial. When you stop and think about it, it suggests that it's... It's the reason burial is important. It's an important step. Is that burial puts the deceased person where? In the ground. Out of this world forever. I mean, a corpse is dead to life, right? They're dead. But they're still around life. And what Paul is saying is you've been so transferred from your life in Adam, this life of sin and death, into this new life in Christ, that you've actually, this old, old self has been buried. It has no effect. It's buried because it's dead. There's a sense that a corpse could still be said to be in life. It's around life. But when it's buried, it's placed in the ground. It's covered with earth. It's removed from the the sphere of the living. Gone forever. That's why Paul here says he wants to emphasize the finality of our being removed from the rule of sin and death to the rule of Christ. He says, you've not only died to sin, but you know what? You've been buried. You've been buried. To go back and sin once you've been joined to Christ is like digging up a dead body. That's what it's like. And I think we need to stop and we need to ask ourselves the practical question, well, do we still sin? Sure we do. We all sin in different ways. But we're talking here about a life of sin. A life that has been transformed. A life that has changed. Even the Apostle Paul, after his transformation, he continues on in Romans and he says, you know what, the things I want to do, for the glory of God, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. Why? Because he's a sinful human being. And as long as we're in this flesh, as long as we're in this world, we're going to have to deal with sin. 
But what Paul is trying to tell us is we don't have to deal with it the way we dealt with it before Christ because it doesn't have a hold on us anymore. We can actually say no to sin now. We can ask God for the power of the Spirit to give us that desire against sin, to hate sin, rather than just kind of say, oh, well, I'll just sin anyway because God's grace will cover it. That's, that's the improper thinking. But let me close with this practical question. Well, what if you do sin? <laughs> what if I go back? What if I do sin? How does that affect me as a Christian? Well, first of all, it won't work. <laughs> it won't work. I mean, think about it. Think of my, the illustration I used of an adult trying to return to childhood. They may try to return to childhood. They may act childish, but anybody that looks at them go, that's an adult acting like a child. They didn't really go back and become a child. It would be a dishonor to him and it would be an embarrassment to everyone else for an adult to act childish. It can't be done. In the same way, if you're a true Christian, you cannot return to sin in the same way you were in it previously. You can sin. We do sin. We all sin. But not in the same way. If nothing else... You cannot enjoy sin as you did before. It won't work. People will look at you and say, like they did Peter, when he was trying to swear that he didn't know Jesus. They said, surely you're one of his disciples. There's something there. It was incongruous with his new life in Christ. A sinful life is always that. Secondly, not only will it not work, but God will stop you. And this is a scary thought. God will stop you. God will not stop you from sinning, but he will stop you from continuing in it. And he'll do it in one of two ways. Either he'll make your life so miserable that you will curse the day that you got into sin and you'll beg God to get you out of it. Or simply, God will put an end to your life physically. Paul told the Corinthians that because they had dishonored the Lord's Supper, that God actually took some of them home to heaven. If God did that to them for that offense, He will do it to you for persistence. In sinful behavior. See, we, we, we deceive ourselves into thinking that, well, you know, it is, we're, we're under God's grace, and if I just continue doing this, it's okay. It's not okay. And God will correct it. And some people, I've talked to some Christians, that say, well, I've been doing this for years and nothing's happened. My question is, you're probably not a Christian. <laughs> if you're doing it with that kind of just lack of conscience, you're probably not a believer. You better go back to the basics and figure out whether you're in Christ or not, whether your sins are truly forgiven, whether you're walking in the newness of life. So it won't work. God will stop it. And then thirdly, if you do return to the life you lived before becoming a Christian or coming to Christ, and if you're able to continue in it, I'd basically just have four words for you. You're not saved. You're not saved. It's even worse than that. If you're able to go back 
Once you have come to Christ, it means not only that you were not saved, but you you have really almost grown a uh, resistance against Christ's work in your life. That's why in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer writes this, It is possible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. They probably were never there. There's no such thing as, as there's no other sacrifice to be had other than Christ. So I want to ask you this, this question in closing today. As you think about your own Christian life, are you more on fire for Christ today than you were yesterday or the day before or last year or ten years ago? Or are you feeling a little cold? you feeling a little clammy? You're seeing sin creep its way back in. Don't allow that to happen. You know, if it causes you to fall on your knees and you repent and you turn to Christ, that's what's needed. That's what God wants. God wants us on fire for Him. And so many times we're fooling around with sin, the sin of this world, thinking that somehow we're covered by the grace of God that saved us and it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. The holiness of your life is at stake. The holiness of this church is at stake. The reputation of Christ is at stake. We need to make sure that we're living lives that are growing in righteousness. That we're becoming more like Christ each and every day. Maybe you're here today and this is all new to you and you're just going, man, I don't even know what the heck you're talking about. But you know what? I have one thing to say to you. That we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. The Bible says that. And what he wants you to do is he wants you to turn to him and say, God, once for all, I, I want to put myself in your hands. I, I want to trust you for salvation. I'm tired of trying to work this out on my own. Trying to be more religious. Trying to do this. Trying to do that. The Bible says that we're saved by faith. Grace, it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. We can't earn it. God is here. He has his arms open wide. He's saying, hey, if you're tired of living, you come unto me. I have a burden that's easier than the one you're carrying. Trust me. If you're thirsty, you come unto me. You'll never thirst again. That's the gospel message. I pray that it will affect change in all of our hearts. Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to see the importance of understanding who we are in Christ, our position in Christ, that we've been baptized into Christ as believers, and that we don't have to focus on this old sinful self, that it's literally been buried. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that going into the battle that we face each and every day. I don't know about anybody else, but that that gives me a 
kind of a spring in my step, realizing that, that sin is defeated, that death is defeated, that Christ has victory over that, and in Christ I have victory over that. Practically, that makes me desire to live up to my calling, to live up to that position, to try every day to, to live a life that's honoring to, to Christ. And when I do sin, I know that you're there. The Bible says if we confess our sins, if we come to you and say we're sorry, we repent of our sin, we know this was wrong, that you cleanse us, you forgive us from all unrighteousness. We have that open door to go to you. We don't have to go to a church or a priest or a little room and confess our sins. We go directly to the Father through Christ. What a glorious thing. I pray for anyone here today who might not have put their faith or trust in Christ. I pray that you would do that work through the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would draw them onto yourself. That only you can. As believers, we would walk out of here understanding who we are in Christ and being willing to share a message that changes, has the power to change and transform lives just like it did our very own. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen.